0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's the day after Halloween here in the
1: HowStuffWorks office. How is your Halloween, guys? Was, yeah, I had a good one. Uh, I had to
2: go hunting for like an actual Halloween experience though. Cause I, my wife and I got dressed up and we took the mm-hmm. dogs out for a walk and no one in like a like a mile radius
1: of our house was was really celebrating Halloween. you're not saying hunting hunting well i was you don't seem like a
2: hunting i was hunting humans
1: that's what you do on halloween right
2: for fun but
0: not hunting them for fun hunting them in hopes
2: of finding exactly and i prefer the ones that are in costumes because they taste better (laughs) so we had to get in the car and drive to a suburban neighborhood where there was like full-on halloween going and it was great
0: ah well uh well we just went around in our neighborhood uh, uh, my son, uh, his, his friend, uh, uh, their parents, and we all just walked around, did the trick-or-treating thing. Yeah. And there, but there was one moment that was, uh, that was a little bit legitimately creepy, uh, I'll say, that, uh, that kind of goes in with our, uh, recent recent creepypasta episode. Oh, really? So we were finishing up. It was dark, uh, you know, one or two houses left, and there are a lot of kids on this particular street that we are trick-or-treating on, and one of the kids turns around and he points past me, uh, behind my back and says, says, He's dressed as Slender Man and mm-hmm. I look around and there's clearly nobody dressed as Slender Man. There's like nobody <laughs> even tall enough to be Slender Man. Yeah. And it like left me confused for a second. And I for for a, a, a brief moment I considered is he seeing something that only children can see? Is Slender Man <laughs> back there? And, wow. That's um, actually
2: that would make the Slender Man thing even creepier yeah. if it was only children could see Slender
0: Man. But I I wanted to question him, I didn't get a chance. I was like, like hey hey kid, where is Slender Man? Point to, to Slender Man, let's have a, a discussion about this. What? Hey, Joe, what did you do?
1: Uh, I stayed home. Rachel and I stayed home. We gave out some candy to trick or treaters. We uh, we reheated some leftover chili, kind of nice Halloween feast, and we mm. watched Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot miniseries. Oh wow! Oh, yes. With with all of the haircuts, yeah, the, the true horror <laughs> in that Soul. movie, yeah. The 70s haircuts, unbelievable. That
2: movie scared the hell out of me uh-huh. when I first saw it, but I was much younger. Yeah, the, the scene with the little boy floating up uh, against the window.
1: Yeah, the vampires in it are yeah. really freaky. Yeah, yeah
0: I, I haven't seen it in forever, but I listened to a lot of Halloween mixes yesterday. Mm-hmm. And there was one in particular that threw in some samples from the Salem's Lot movie, the, the bit where the, the showdown between uh, is the ma- the master and the, uh, the priest. Oh, Barlow and Callahan. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah man, I, w- I would sample the heck
1: out of James Mason in that movie mm-hmm. because he is so smooth. Yeah, I love how they, they invert the classic monsters familiar, like in the Universal Dracula and well, all, all the traditional Draculas. You get the crazy familiar. You get Renfield, who's Mm -hmm. out of control, but he's also, like, imprisoned and not very potent Mm -hmm. as a character. In in this one, you got this smooth, suave James Mason in these fancy suits.
2: Yeah, he's basically Captain Nemo outside of the submarine. Hey, I got a question, though. We're talking about Halloween, and actually, October's over, guys. That means that we can't do halloween episodes for another year <laughs> that's a
1: bummer though you know us if you're a regular listener we yeah, kind of we'll, slip some halloween in all year long yeah we'll
0: we'll we'll sneak it in i'm sure of course we've been talking about halloween for a month yeah. And in doing that, we, we managed to yet again let the Ig Nobel prizes slip past us. So. We did, yeah. We're gonna make up for that this week and also provide maybe a, a, a kind of a palate cleanser, I guess, for anyone who wishes to move on from Halloween, uh, <laughs> episodes for a little bit. This'll definitely be like your silly science, uh, series of episodes. Mm-hmm.
2: So, let's, why don't we tell the audience, maybe some of them haven't listened to our previous Ig Nobel episodes, but we generally cover them every year. Uh, what are they?
0: Well, they have been awarded since 1991 by uh, the publication, the Annals of Improbable Research. Uh, The purpose of the award, according to the editors of the the publication, is to, quote, honor achievements that first make people laugh, then make them think, and uh, furthermore, they stress that uh, the 10 prizes aren't necessarily meant to pass judgment on the winners. Instead, the official website emphasizes that the prizes, quote, celebrate the unusual, honor the imaginative, and spur people's interest in science, medicine, and technology. And the principal individual here in all of this is uh, the editor of, the, of uh, the Annals of Improbable Research, Mark Abrams. And I would say that that goes along with our mission here.
2: And mm-hmm. so it, these kind of work together nicely in that, like, hopefully we give them a little bit of a boost. They point out this – bizarre research that we can take a deeper look at. And we have more time on the podcast than they have in their live ceremony to actually like dive into the research here.
0: Yeah, I think one of the the big take homes about it, I mean, obviously, it is a it is a reference to the Nobel Prizes where where the like a Nobel Prize in chemistry or biology is a big deal. And it's usually a study that is going to have a huge impact. With the Ig Nobel Prizes, I think it it, it definitely highlights this idea that we have touched on before, science as this slime mold, making its way through a maze or a labyrinth, and... uh, and the slime mold of science, as it explores the world, it is going to explore everywhere. It is going to look in every mundane uh, pantry and closet, uh, and that is that's one of the things the Nobel Prize is celebrating. Some of these studies that we're going to discuss, it's one of those areas where you can say, "Well, why did science need to look into that? Mm. Why, why did money and effort and and scientific rigor approach this portion of the world?" And the answer. Is Well, because science must. Science must go in there.
2: And in some of these cases, it actually turns out to be important, like yeah. stuff that seems totally ludicrous, which I don't know about you guys, but some of mine seem <laughs> totally ludicrous. But uh, – yeah, and, and in fact, like other episodes of our show, have built off of enti- the entire premise of Ig Nobels. Like, for instance, our necrophilia episode. Mm-hmm. uh Basically, we got the jumping point off of that from I think it was like an Ig Nobel from like five years ago, maybe. Yeah, longer. the necrophilic duck. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and we were able to find a whole ton of information. That's one of my favorite episodes. Yeah,
1: I, I remember after you guys had first been talking about doing that, we were in this long meeting. And at the end of the meeting, somebody came over to talk to me about something. And I realized what was on my computer screen was all this stuff about duck necrophilia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: I hope they liked it.
1: I, and if you out there haven't listened to the episode, you should, because it's
2: really surprisingly not as grim as you would think. I mean, it's grim, but it's also like really educational, both in terms of the animal kingdom, but also psychology of human beings
0: yeah it it demystifies the topic uh and and i think uh manages to do so in a non-exploitive way so what and it's a
1: great way to get through a meeting boring meeting
0: hit up the duck necrophilia (laughs) so what can we do that with today oh we have a we have a host of uh, studies here to touch on there are 10 awards right so this is going to be part one of a multi-part episode correct how many episodes who knows it might be two it might be three we'll see how it goes so the approach here, as in previous years, is we divided these 10 prizes up. We each took three of them, and then there was one left over, and uh, I ended up taking that one just because I had one of my other papers turned out to be a bit short.
1: Okay, well, it looks like I'm up to bat first. All right. What do you have for us, Joe? Well, this would be the physics prize this year, which was offered to Marc-Antoine Fardin for using fluid dynamics to probe the question, can a cat be both a solid and a liquid? <laughs>
2: this is a real uh, Schrödinger's cat slash not scenario
1: right okay yeah i can see that the cat's both a liquid and a solid until you look at it yeah Mm -hmm. okay uh so it's for a paper called on the rayology of cats so here's an experience i'm sure you've all had you're at a restaurant you get some french fries you want to put some ketchup on your plate but the ketchup at your table is the glass bottle ah you know there may be trouble ahead so you turn it up, you unscrew the top, you shake, jiggle, tap, and all that. But you can't get the stuff out of the bottle. It will not flow. You all have had this experience, oh, right? Oh, yeah.
0: That's when you have to uh, – it's probably not very uh, polite, but you have to get the butter knife yeah, out. Yeah, I always stick a butter knife in there. Just jam the knife in. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And you just, but then you end up feeling like a real animal, uh, which is always a shame because I find that – the glass bottle of ketchup, you tend to encounter it at not the the highest level of restaurant because that kind of place is gonna have is gonna bring it out to you in a yeah a little like a dish. soup cup yeah. Right. But it's also not a super cheap restaurant because otherwise you would have packets or you would have a plastic squeeze bottle uh-huh. or you would have a, a pump and little little cups that you fill it up with. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice enough restaurant that you feel awkward jabbing a, a knife into a bottle like an animal. You know some restaurants take those glass bottles
1: and they just refill them. Oh, yeah, Yeah, the mirroring of of the do. It's a a holy uh, I worked at a restaurant
2: for four years while I was in college. That was part of the job, was refilling those. Much cheaper
1: to buy in bulk and then just pump it back in. Oh, yeah. But but in that case, why wouldn't you use a squirt bottle anyway? So if if you have ever had this experience and you've ever wondered why won't the ketchup come out, your interest in the subject of rheology has been ignited. Rheology is the study of how matter flows. So given your experience with the ketchup bottles – you can probably guess that this is a surprisingly complex field. A lot of variables are going to go into how a substance flows under various conditions. So you know that one glass ketchup bottle sort of cleanly evacuates onto your plate, maybe even faster than you Mm -hmm. want it to. And then the next one, same brand, same content, same bottle, just will not budge until you jam the knife in. So what makes the difference? There are a lot of variables. Temperature is a big one. You probably know this from cooking, right? You've got a lot of sauces, soups, other edible fluids that are very runny at a high temperature, but almost solid at a low temperature. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are just tons of rheology characteristics that you can chart. Exactly uh, how does a flowing material react to different types of substrate materials? Like how does it flow on glass versus on some other type of material? Uh, Or how does it – like how far will it bubble up off the lip of a container before it overflows? There are all kinds of questions like that. So the measurement of a material's ability to flow is known as rayometry. And I think this paper technically qualifies as a foray into rayometry because it's going to be measuring cats.
2: <laughs> and how, how well cats flow out of ketchup bottles? Uh
1: Not quite ketchup bottles, but it gets surprisingly close. Okay. Uh, so rayology is actually kind of – it's one of those things that seems kind of dry at first, but it's more interesting the more you think about it. Uh, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus is famous for this insistence that the fundamental nature of the universe is sort of constant change. It's sort of like the static change. Since everything is always changing in a way, everything is always the same. You've heard that quote that no man ever steps in the same river twice. That's attributed to Heraclitus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another way of expressing this idea is the aphorism "Panta Rhei," which is Greek for everything flows, like we all flow down here and will flow too <laughs> and uh, and so everything changes nothing remains still and fardam points out that the field of rheology is sort of along the same uh, same lines as this idea by heraclitus states of matter are not fixed features of the universe they are expressed uh, through a matter of time so eventually forces act on every mass of particles to make those particles deform or flow in some way uh, solid matter tends to deform over time. Liquid or gas tends to flow. Gotcha.
2: Okay. Yeah, this makes sense. So I'm thinking about like uh, we we recently talked about like these massive glaciers in mm-hmm. uh, Svalbard, and mm-hmm. that some of these glaciers have different uh, states. Inside of themselves. So some of them are more liquid and more solid than other states and that causes them to move, the entire glacier to move at different paces. So this is somewhat related.
1: Yeah, but that's a great example because on a long enough time scale, glaciers do flow as well, even yep. though they're solid and you can walk on them. If you want to look over hundreds of years, they're sort of flowing. Uh, so a major factor in how things flow or resist flow is the state of matter. We all remember this from, you know, elementary school physics. But by traditional definition, you've got solids, liquids, and gas. And a solid is the state of matter which has both a fixed volume, it's not gonna change in size, and a fixed shape. It's not gonna change in shape. Liquid is the state of matter that's got a fixed volume but not a fixed shape, and instead it conforms to the shape of whatever contains it. And then gas doesn't have either one. It doesn't have a fixed shape or a fixed volume but expands to fill whatever container it's in. Here's where the cat comes in. Now, being an animal, I think you generally assume the cat is more or less a solid, right? Well, it's I'm, kind of complex. It's, it's
0: a solid filled with liquids. Yeah, that's true. Animals and, are kind of bags of juice, right? And then, but then, cats. I haven't read the study, but ever since I saw the title, I keep looking at my cat and watching her move, and she does have like a very flowy liquid. Uh, movement to oh, her, you know?
1: totally, but it's not... I would say it, it comes through less when the cat is moving around and walking and more when the cat is at rest in various containers <laughs> and substrates. So you guys are both cat owners. Mm-hmm. Haven't you seen the way a cat will sometimes seem to puddle in the bathroom sink or pour itself into a basket or box? Oh, definitely the baskets and box. Like, that seems to be mm-hmm. universal. It's- yeah, definitely. My
2: my female cat, Rowan, is... Uh, she She has an ability to like she's a little overweight, but she has an ability to kind of just make her her mounds of flesh kind of form around her in mm-hmm. a liquid status,
1: yeah, I mean, I remember this for I've seen lots of cats that love to just sort of n- not just get into depressions and cavities in various types of containers but seem to fill them perfectly to every edge like a liquid would. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, right. So that inspired some people on the Internet to make posts like cats are liquids. And then <laughs> Fardan is basically like, I saw a thing on the Internet that said cats are liquids. Let's find out. <laughs> so he essentially takes a bunch of photos of cats and analyzes them using the criteria of rheology, the same way you'd measure, a, say, a mass of ketchup or paint or mud to understand the way it flows, uh, a cat in a jar, a cat spread across a lot of bars, a cat in a basket. And what follows in the paper, I would say, is mostly just a bunch of in-jokes for rheologists, but I do think it's kind of interesting. Uh, the, the results are obviously that cats can have some unique rheological properties, combining apparent features of both solids and liquids. Okay. But wouldn't that be true of basically any mammal?
0: Well, I mean, part of any fat furry mammal. Yeah, I
1: I think the fur, the fur and the sort of soft body is very crucial for the Mm -hmm. cat. I'm probably a little bit solid and a little bit liquid. (laughs) Oh yeah, like what? Like seventy percent of my body is liquid. Well, I mean, we are pretty much blood bags. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. but I would say something about the shape of your body. So imagine yourself trying to get into a sink or a box or a basket and just. Fill it the way a cat appears to, like a liquid. Yeah. It well, doesn't seem quite as easy for you and me, right? This well, is one true, of the
0: yeah. things about cats, of course, is that they are extremely flexible, yeah. and uh, and and then they have these sort of various resting states that they'll go into these kind of uniform, uh, uh, you know, resting states. So there's yeah. there's uh, I like to think of it as you have the bread uh, shape where the cat right. you know kind of tucks its uh, legs in and its cat kind bus, of, yeah, yeah, kind of cat bus shape, the cat loaf. Yeah, the cat or a cat loaf, you could call it. There's also the bagel in which they curl up, uh-huh. and then there's one. There's one. I I think most of them do this, but my cat Mochi definitely does this one where she just kind of like lays like she's been hit by a truck or something. You know, <laughs> yeah. where it's just just completely sprawled out. Uh-huh. Uh, but all of these, they they do look like different animals in these different shapes, and it's really hard to nail down exactly what the shape of their body is. Yeah,
2: yeah, uh, yeah. but I, my. Flesh isn't as loosely hanging off of my body as it does on my cats.
1: Right, yeah. On cats, you feel like you can just move it all over the place, Mm -hmm. and the fur really helps also. The fur – gives the illusion that there's, like, a yeah. much more body there than there actually is. And that part of the body obviously can be deformed into almost any shape. That's why when you give a cat a bath, it is,
2: like, one of the saddest things ever. Because right. they're miserable, but also they lose this ability you're talking about.
1: Right. So that's part of the thing. A shaved cat would not appear to be a liquid in the same way a very furry cat is. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's, it's pretty funny in the paper. Like, a lot of these are obviously... A lot of these things he says in the paper are funnier if you are a rheologist or you're familiar with all these concepts, but they're still pretty funny even to an outsider. Like one is a picture of a cat in a basket, and it's a very small basket. So picture a large cat in like a small French fry basket, okay? and it's it's gathered up into the basket, clearly filling it entirely, but puffing out over the top and Mm -hmm. hanging over the sides. And he analyzes this photo by saying, quote, cat on a super philidophobic substrate showing a high contact angle (laughs) another one he's got a jar turned on its side with the mouth facing out and there is a kitten pretty much completely filling the jar and he says quote tilted jar experiment showing the yield stress of a kitten so the yield (laughs) stress would be like what kind of stress has to be put on a mass of liquid before it flows out of a container at a certain angle? So, for example, the the ketchup in the bottle, uh, a lot of times the ketchup will not come out of the bottle because you have not adequately met its yield stress in whatever mm-hmm. form it takes in the bottle. Here we've got the the kitten will not pour out of this jar because its yield stress has not been met. So while this is Funny, Right. Uh
2: And it's written to be funny. It also seems like it's probably important because it illustrates the principles of rheology in a way that that basically backs up how well they work.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I would say that this paper seems to me to be jokier than most of the other papers we're Mm -hmm. looking at this time. Like he actually does do some math in the paper and actually applies the Rheological principles, does real analysis, but it's mostly, I think, just for the purpose of being funny, especially to other Mm Rheologists. But I I think it matters. And, And he mentions in the paper some ways in which it might matter. Like one thing is that Cats are unlike most other types of liquids you would measure the flow of because they are self-powered and Mm self-moving. And there are some analogies here to other things that you might actually want to study. Like uh, studying the flow of self-powered materials does matter in a lot of scenarios like studying the movement of large packs or flocks of animals. Or studying the flow of crowds of humans under various constraints. And this is sort of me extrapolating because I think that would also come into some different kinds of fields other than rheology. There's probably, you know, such a thing as just studying crowd dynamics, but.
2: But hold on. I got an idea of how this connects. Okay. So remember that movie World War Z? Yes. With the zombies like mm-hmm. – Zombie flow, basically, yeah. Basically – yeah, exactly. Like the zombies like came together as like a hive mind and could like – didn't – there's even one point where like I think they turned into a hand or something. Something dumb like that,
1: right? They formed yeah. structures kind of like fire ants too. You're talking about the movie. The course? movie, yeah. not the book at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, they would climb walls by piling themselves up against the wall and then scaling over.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you could – let's say you were one of the CGI operators on that film and you <laughs> needed to figure out how they would flow. Uh-huh. You could probably use the principles of rheology applied based on something like – on crowd dynamics, Yeah, possibly. Right?
1: Well, I mean I would say that the crowd dynamics – studying the flow of crowds and other self-powered – uh, types of flow could have real consequences in, say, designing environments. For example, crowd crush and trampling are real things that happen when you get a bunch of people together in a place and yep. they start flowing in a non-optimal way. I did an
2: entire huh. BrainStuff episode on the, the science of crowd crushes. And yeah. so
1: I think maybe like understanding self-directed flow of biomaterials, whether it's a single animal or lots of animals acting as a pack, could help us better, maybe maybe better design public spaces to accommodate sudden human crowd flow without leading to tragedies.
0: So cases where, say, a, a large group of people are Are screaming and flowing out of a movie theater, and also cases where the blob is flowing out of the same movie theater after them, Uh, both of these would be Uh, opportunities for rayology. The rayology of the blob would be a great paper. That's what this guy should
1: write next. Oh, I I bet somebody has done that out there. I bet that's one of those things you could find.
0: But to your point about just raising awareness of rayology, I think that's a, a great case in point. On this show, I do not believe we have ever discussed rheology before, and here we are yep, discussing right. it. Well, yeah.
1: I, I think we should commit now. We should try to find at least <laughs> one really, truly interesting rheology topic to cover within the next year.
0: Okay. Yeah. Maybe the blob. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will jump into another 2017 Ig Nobel-winning study. All right. We're back. Robert, what do you have for us? All right. So – this one, this was actually the first one that I, I snagged, uh, from, from this year's offerings, uh, because it is a paper that I have covered before, kind of ad nauseum, uh, because there is a Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast episode, I believe, that touches on this. There was a video, and I'm pretty sure I did a blog post as well. Oh, I remember this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The, uh, the title of the, the paper is Female penis, male vagina, and their correlated evolution in a cave insect. And this was a current biology paper paper from 2014. I got to say, first of all, for our listeners, there's an image that's inserted here in our notes
2: for Robert's referencing. Insert is a good uh, yeah. description. Yeah, it is very difficult to tell what is happening here, but it is also very easy to imagine what is happening here. It's just <laughs> these... uh organ-like structures flowing into and out of each other with a male and female symbol on them. It looks somewhat insectile, or maybe there's
0: just hair on everything. I can't tell. Oh, it is a, it is a Cronenberg-y uh, world that yeah. this, uh, this image uh, tempts us with. So basically, the reason uh, that this, uh, this study was highlighted previously, the reason it won an Ig Nobel uh, uh, this year is because it concerns sex the sex-swapped world of cave bugs, which I think we can all get behind. Um, so specifically, we're talking about Brazilian cave insects of the Neotrogla genus. Uh, we're talking four distinct species here, and they mark the first documented example of an animal with sex-reversed genitalia. <laughs> so as dis- as detailed in uh, the Cell Press Journal Current Biology the females quote insert an elaborate penis-like organ into the males much reduced vagina-like opening during 40 to 70 hour long lovemaking marathons. Wow.
1: So to clarify, would this mean that the male still makes sperm cells? Correct. And the female still makes egg cells? Right. But they, they bring them into contact by the female inserting an organ into the male to retrieve the sperm cells from inside. Exactly. Yeah, it's okay. It's just a different, like, formation, essentially. Yeah, but uh, it's, but it's
0: unique, is the thing. Like, there are no other examples of, of a, a sex or gender swapping like this robust right
2: yeah and this is i mean that's 40 to 70 hours i mean sting would probably
0: be embarrassed looking at this <laughs> well these cave bugs the 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 thing is of course that uh, sting is a lover and uh i think lovemaking is a bit uh anthropomorphic when you're talking about insects yeah i i, I kind of agree yeah, yeah. Uh, because the insect world is pretty brutal, and the love making world of really the love making world of a lot of organisms is fairly brutal uh and is the um, <laughs> I love how we've just landed on love
1: making instead of mating
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it you know it just sounds more romantic right yeah, uh, I guess so so um but there's more uh, there's there's more there are some more brutal details here uh, as the team of brazilian and japanese researchers discovered the female inserts her phallic gynosome into the male and then the sex organ inflates hooking a bevy of spines into the male's body to anchor the two insects together now this is not the only organism with penis spines no in fact, uh, there there's evidence that human uh, ancestors have had uh, penis spines as no well. No way. Hominid, uh, other ho- hominids have had penis spines before, and I believe there is some genetic data you can point to. Robert, t- tell me a little more about penis spines. I think I'm woefully undereducated here. All right. So, yeah, it's like basically like a – Cactus penis—I guess you could describe it as—because uh, basically there's sort of a reproductive arms race in many organisms, and this is where spines may serve to stimulate or anchor uh, the organism into place, or it may serve in sexual conflict.
1: Now, I think you're probably out there thinking, like, what? So, some insects have penis spines. That's it, right? No, I mean like mammals have yeah, penis yeah. spines. Like yeah. cats have cats penis have like penis spines, corkscrew kind of,
0: right? Yeah, humans should wake up every day and just be thankful, for, you know, for a number of things. But one of the things on the list should be that we don't have to contend with penis spines. Um, in, in this case of the the, the cave insect, uh, the researchers think that it may have other functions uh, aside from just anchoring it into place. It might have a role in genital stimulation or or in or quote in inflicting harm. So it's it's kind of hard to figure out. It's like the the brundlefly told us. Uh, there's no such thing as insect politics. It's yeah. all. Yeah. It, and uh, so wait a minute. Like this could be a sex organ or a defensive or offensive weapon. Well, only in so far as it plays into the. The, the war, the continual battle of sexual reproduction. Yeah. The, when I, whenever I've read
2: about this in the past, it's been a biological uh, survival mechanism, I guess. And, and it's this is horrible from an ethical standpoint of humans, right? But the idea is that the one without the penis barbs can't get away. If right. they do mm-hmm. not want to mate with the one with the penis barbs, once the barbs are attached, they're kind of stuck. Right. So I think that's what you mean by the inflicting harm, right? That it's it's sort of along the lines of uh, – if, if these were human beings, we would be referring to this as like a, a masochistic act.
0: Now, the, the the gynosome in this case, it again, it does not deposit material – uh, like a ma- male penis, there's no semen coming out of it. There's no sperm deposit. Instead, this uh, gynosome, it receives sperm uh, as well as capsules of nourishment, sort of a gift or a bribe to encourage uh, lots of mating. We see this in a number of different uh, um, insects, typically. The mm-hmm. spiders, too. Like yeah. They're
1: the spiders that create a, a little wrapped up gifts. Uh, the males bring them to the females mm-hmm. to encourage mating, though sometimes they bring them something empty to trick them. So this is essentially like a, an inverted vagina dentata. You can think of it that way. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So.
0: The, the interesting... Wait, would it
1: be inverted? Would it be an extroverted vagina dentata? <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. That's probably the correct uh, terminology. No, to it's use probably here. not. <laughs> I don't. By the way,
2: also, vagina dentata is something that we've covered on the show separately. But that that, that that was a joke. That's not actual like biology.
0: I guess that you would say it's kind of aversion, I believe. Sure, e- yeah. Everted. Yeah, yeah it was like everted. The, turning, the turning out of a pocket. And yeah, the, the that's inflation. exactly it's what that I was pocket. thinking yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's very complicated to try and sort of. Fit the the uh, the Tetris uh, uh, equation here uh, in one's mind. Genital Tetris. <laughs> now that uh, that act of gift giving that we were talking about, the nourishment, uh, the researchers have argued here that this is likely what drove the evolutionary development of the female penis, the gynosome here to begin with. Uh, again, getting into this phallic arms race. Oh, hmm. okay, okay. Now. Why is it funny? I think that's pretty obvious Uh, because it is a study that involves sex and the idea of a female organism penetrating a male organism. So sex teehee. Yes. Basically, that's that's it. It's it's benign violation. Well, yeah, as long as you're not one of the the male cave bug. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's basically just a a funny uh, sex headline, right? But it, it is still important. It's uh, it it's I think it's such a startling reversal of everything we've come to expect from sexual reproduction. And as the researchers point out, the reversal here is is in the quote rapid evolution and diversification unquote of genitalia. So male genitalia is usually the one to develop quote, coercive adaptations, while female genitalia remains relatively simple. Uh, Plus, it's the females doing the competition here for males and their seminal gifts. So the biological reversal results in a very robust behavioral reversal. Hmm. So perhaps with this particular species, there's more
2: females than males or there's some kind of a I don't know if sociological is the right term, but there's a there's a setup in which like they have to compete for the the attention of the males
1: in order to reproduce. Well, it sounds like the females would be the ones doing the, the courtship yeah. activities. Right.
0: Yeah. And and it's it's interesting to to look at that. It's like to say that the biological reversal and then that reverses the behavior as well. OK. Uh, I really like this study because I think flipping things around like this, it shows us that sexual reproduction is all about just the combination of these two things and the form those things take. And all the behavior and culture associated with it is merely a product of natural selection.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And it makes me sort of think like where is it going as well, not just with insects but with like all species, you know, although for the most part, for the last like – million some odd years, most of our species have stayed the same reproductive-wise, but things can change, well, and it also, especially when we start changing ourselves.
0: It's also one of those studies that just raises the possibility, like, what if, what if things had gone the other way? What if we were in a world where the vast majority, almost all um, organisms that engage in sexual reproduction uh, entailed a, the, the female penetration of the male, yeah. Right, and, uh, and we were looking at a, a weird cave bug that did the opposite.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It does put it all into perspective. Yeah.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have one more study here for you from the 2017 Ig Nobels. All right. We're
2: back. So I'm going to take us from inverted genitals to an entirely different place. This is the peace prize for the Ig Nobels this year. Ooh. Uh, and it revolves around the didgeridoo. You guys familiar with the didgeridoo? Oh, yes.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'm actually
2: (laughs) – can our producer Alex insert the sound of a didgeridoo in here so that our audience kind of gets an idea of what we're talking
1: about? No, wait. That was a didgeridoo. Here we go. (laughs)
0: And if nothing else, I think everybody should recognize that sound from any, like, Australian exploitation film where something mystical happens. What, now, was there a bunch of didgeridoo in Howling 3, The Marsupials? I feel like there was. I mean, if there wasn't, it was a, that was a colossal failure on their part. Yeah.
2: Well, if there was, those marsupials would sleep better than most people.
1: No way. Yeah. Huh.
2: We've got some facts here, folks. Didgeridoo playing as alternative treatment for obstructive sleep apnea syndrome in a randomized control trial, that is the paper that I am talking to you about today. The essential idea here is they demonstrated that regular playing of the didgeridoo is an effective treatment for obstructive sleep apnea and snoring. Huh. So, do either you guys snore or do you have sleep apnea? I don't have apnea. My dad does,
0: but I snore a decent amount. I have I have relatives who who have uh, snoring issues, but yeah, I don't have it myself. So, have you
2: ever thought to yourself like, eh? What if I just play the didgeridoo a little
0: bit more? Would that make it better? Science says yes. So this is the the play the like you're playing the didgeridoo music to settle down for the evening, Are you listening to it, or you just have having uh,
2: it in your life. It huh? doesn't even have to be right before you go to bed. Oh, oh, wow. I'll explain. Okay. So these researchers, they took twenty-five patients who had apnea or hypopnea in in an index between 15 and 30. That's you know a a measurement system that they use for like how bad these conditions can get. Uh, and they had them do didgeridoo lessons for four months. And the participants played didgeridoo for about six days a week for about 25.3 minutes a day. And it significantly improved both their and their partner's sleep disturbances. Now, we might wonder, like, what's the biological function here like what is going on well okay sleep disorders of this type they're caused by the collapse of the upper airway so the most effective intervention is usually what's called positive airway pressure therapy so that's like when you
1: see people who have the mask they go to sleep with I think that, that so. provides yeah. positive pressure yeah to yeah. be
2: honest like when I have sinus problems what I end up doing is just pushing on my my sinuses around my nose I think it's a mm-hmm. similar effect but this is obviously like more methodical than okay. what I'm doing okay Uh, For some patients, though, that's not suitable. So they need other interventions. The researchers involved in this experiment, they had heard, just heard from a didgeridoo instructor. He said, hey, uh, my students and I, we've had a complete reduction in our snoring and we're not sleepy during the daytime after we've been practicing didgeridoo for several months. Huh. Uh, and they thought, wait a minute, is this because didgeridoo is training the muscles in their upper airways? So, okay, they set up this methodology and they recruited patients at study centers in Switzerland. Then they randomized these patients into an intervention group and a control group. And then they excluded candidates who are currently trying out that positive airway pressure therapy and any drugs that act on the central nervous system, as well as anybody who was trying to lose weight or weighed too much or drank too much alcohol, because all of these things could be contributing factors. The patients in the intervention group took The didgeridoo classes, and they learned the following things. I've never played a didgeridoo before, so I didn't – this was new to me. Uh, Circular breathing is a technique that enables you to maintain sound for a long period of time by inhaling through your nose while maintaining airflow through the instrument itself, and use your cheeks as bellows. Okay. Okay, So this is like the first kind of important part of this. And then the second is to optimize the complex interaction between – your lips, your vocal tract, and the circular breathing I just mentioned so that the vibration in the upper airway is more readily transmitted
0: down to the lower airway. Well, I guess one thing to keep in mind here is that with with didgeridoo music, you don't hear a bunch of, uh, you know, staccato. You don't hear, you don't hear da-da-da-da-da. You hear long droning tones. It's sustained. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I imagine also
1: helps contribute to this, right? Now I've got a question. Are there any drone or doom metal bands that incorporate didgeridoo? There
2: have to be. There have to be. I'm almost positive there is, yeah.
0: and But do you think they're from Australia or somewhere else? I don't know. You get into an interesting area where it would be like a... Like an, an, an aboriginal uh, subset of yeah. drone music, kind of like traditional drone music. Like oh. what
1: happens when you run a didgeridoo through
2: an orange amp? I mean, <laughs> I have to admit, like most Sun O records sound like they have didgeridoo yep. in the oh, background yeah. anyways. But uh so here's the thing. How do you measure this? Well, it turns out there's several indexes to measure the effect on sleep, and so they brought these patients in. They gave them these indexes as surveys, and then they uh, used cardiorespiratory sleep studies on them. Uh, and finally, they gave the patients just a generic health and quality of life survey, just to find out, you know, what's all going on, making sure everything's working the right way. They found this: the patients' quality of sleep actually didn't differ significantly between the people who played didgeridoo and the people who didn't. But their partners reported less sleep disturbances. Ah. Hmm. They also observed a significant effect of, of the didgeridoo playing on apnea or hypopnea. Uh And so actually when they compared this to the positive airway pressure therapy, they found they're similar, but the didgeridoo has a slightly smaller effect. But essentially, like, if you're out there and you're listening and you're like, oh, this is a problem for me and maybe you have to wear one of those masks at night or something like that, mm-hmm. maybe play didgeridoo instead.
1: Like, you know what it reminds me of? Or, is, well, uh, we would say, obviously, follow your doctor's recommendation, yes.
0: but – uh, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, at least
1: try <laughs> give didgeridoo a try maybe. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. do do both. Well, hey man, we, imagine how well you sleep if you do. One both. of the great things uh, about the didgeridoo uh, that I I picked up on is that even if you don't play it or you never play it uh, it still looks great propped up in a corner. Sure. Yeah. Right. It's always yeah, yeah. a discussion starter. Well, I was thinking
2: about how this reminds me of, and this leads us back to cats. We've done, um, some research into cats before on this and on brain stuff talking about, uh, cat purring and the function oh, yeah. of cat purring as like mm-hmm. a method of healing both the cat and maybe people who are on the cat or like the cat's laying on or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the didgeridoo kind of made me think the same thing. Like there's some, there's an act of the vibration that's, that's working on here. But obviously, also, they're building up actual muscles and responses Hmm. inside the respiratory system. So why is it funny? Well, because the sound and the look of the instrument is amusing. Everybody giggles at the didgeridoo, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Because good day, mate. But why
2: is it important? Well, this is an actual thing that can relieve a disorder that many people suffer from. You know, Mm -hmm. most people would go – that's a ridiculous thing. Why would we – why would we research that if the didgeridoo instructor said, hey, this may actually have some benefits to your patients? Most people would just go, eh, yeah, sure. That's anecdotal. But they did the research and they found out that it's
0: a real thing. Well, it comes back around to the idea of of science as this slime mold. Yeah. Uh, you know, opening every cabinet and even the cabinets that seem a bit silly that we seem reluctant to – you know, to, to, to give much credence to the, the science is going to look in there and see if there's anything worth having. You know, this mm-hmm. makes me think we could do probably whole
1: episodes on the medical science of wind instruments. Like, yeah. the, we gotta go from this to bagpipe lung, right? <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> yep. the inverse. Is that a condition? Like, oh, I'm suffering from bagpipe lung. Oh man, so you're a bagpipe player. And you maybe it's actually not funny because this has literally killed people. Oh man! But yeah, bagpipe lung is a thing that uh, where your bagpipe becomes infested with fungus without oh. you realizing because as you're, you're continually in, yeah yeah as you as you're continually experiencing this constricted airflow through this fungus-filled cavity, you are feeding all of these uh these horrible particles into your lungs, and people don't realize what's going on, mm-hmm. and it can kill you. Oh man, that. Sounds like a great idea for an episode. Not to be a
2: downer, guys. Uh-huh. Remember, uh, didgeridoos, well, the they thing. can help people. Yeah. Good day, mate. If you play bagpipes, also
0: play the didgeridoo. Just to balance it I don't out. Think,
2: that okay? I don't think that they reverse the
0: conditions, but you'll feel better about one thing while you're feeling worse about the other. All right. We actually have one more before we close out this installment of our uh, 2017 Igno Bell series, and it is the Fluid Dynamics Prize. Ooh. Yeah. That sounds exciting. Wait, we already did fluid dynamics with those cats. <laughs>
1: you... Somehow, I, I guess rayology is slightly different than fluid dynamics, or maybe yeah. fluid dynamics is a uh, is a larger subset category.
0: I know fluid di- dynamics is certainly it, it, this. It's an area that always intrigues me because, for starters, I, they, they do have a at least one huge conference a year, and you see a lot of cool papers coming out of it. And it ranges tremendously because. For instance, one of the the best fluid dynamic papers, the most enthralling that I came across, was a paper that dealt with how uh, nuclear fallout moves through a, a metropolitan environment. Yeah, that seems oh. important. Uh, you know, with like flows of radioactive material uh-huh. hitting buildings, like cascading up buildings and so forth, yeah. and how we might be able to to map the uh, the flow of these materials. Oof. Yeah. Hey, I got a, a fun footnote to that. Okay. The
2: most expensive book in the world is a book that was written by Leonardo da Vinci and it's owned by Bill Gates and it's about fluid dynamics. Huh. Yeah. And it's written backwards. You
0: wow. have to, you have backwards, to read it in you mean a mirror. Right to
2: left? Mm-hmm. It's, well, yeah, it's written so that you have to use a mirror to actually read it. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Well, you should ask Bill Gates
0: sometime <laughs> <people borrow> if <laughs> you yeah, can borrow pointless. it. Yeah, that sounds pointless. The whole like, thing's actually it'll scanned be... and online. <laughs> Well you know but but one of the great things about fluid dynamics is that yeah it, it it certainly touches on some some rather grandiose topics, but it it also is just everywhere around us like i I have not looked up a study about this, but every time i 'm making a smoothie in the morning uh-huh. uh, in the blender, I think about fluid dynamics now like somebody out there has surely applied some serious scientific thinking to what 's going on with my blender, like how. Yeah. How the stuff blends or in many cases doesn't blend, how you end up with that section of smoothie on the top that's doing nothing while the bottom part is swirling around. I would imagine you like, need a better blender smoothie yes, King or whatever <laughs> those
2: like chains are like those smoothie kings, the one we have here in Atlanta, <laughs> with the big square looking. Uh, yeah. They yeah. must have like uh, scientists on their teams no, whose wait. whole job
1: is to figure out like how well these things can come up through straws. I've read about this. I think the best solution is to stick your hand down in there while it's going. <laughs> oh, uh, really? Yeah. Well, that's what I was th-
0: thinking you were going with the cat thing. Don't follow my advice, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this particular study is titled A Study of the Coffee-Spilling Phenomena in the Low-Impulse Regime. So, <laughs> I, I, Are we in the low-impulse regime right now? I think the, we're in the high-impulse regime. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that, that phrase of the, the low-impulse yeah, regime. It nice. sounds like a band I would be really into. Uh, yeah. It sounds uh, like something Captain Picard would say. <laughs> <laughs> so – Basically, this paper asks the question, from a fluid dynamic standpoint, why does spillage occur with coffee, also with wine? And how might we limit it? And we've mm. all, this. The great thing about this paper is it touches on a universal experience. I
2: am the guy who inevitably always spills coffee on themselves. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You leave a
0: trail of brown liquid. Yeah,
2: like, my, to the point where my wife like knows when I've bought coffee <laughs> and have been driving in the car because she's just like, there's coffee stains everywhere. What is wrong with you? I eat like a raccoon, and apparently with coffee I just like throw the cup at my face, I guess. I don't know. But, yeah, even just like when it has a lid on it and I move it around, it somehow gets everywhere.
1: This is one of my favorite features of classic animation. If you watch like old Disney movies, Uh they're always depicting – cups of liquid sloshing around crazily while people are consuming them you know what i'm talking about oh yeah like people swinging a beer stein or a wine glass Mm -hmm. or something like that and it's just splashing and sloshing all over the place well and that
0: kind of movement tends to it it tends to be everywhere in these old cartoons like the people are kind of sloshing back and forth the action is kind of sloshing i I guess animation historians that probably have a have have uh, some terminology to throw behind that.
2: Yeah, I would imagine it has something to do with, like, the form at the time that, like, the animators and illustrators were probably trying to figure out how best to render uh, liquid in, yeah. in cartoon format. Same as, like, with, with CGI, mm-hmm. like, when it's super impressive how great water is rendered in yeah. CGI.
1: I guess part of what I'm thinking of is that it's always, like, uh, in classic animation – Actions and the themes they signify are exaggerated. Like mm-hmm. if you watch old Disney movies, whenever somebody's drinking something, usually it's in some kind of feast scene that's signaling gluttony or something oh, like that. Yeah, and yeah. so there's all this Depiction of excess and maybe the sloshing is one aspect of that. I
2: immediately thought of, uh, Fantasia and, uh, Mickey carrying. Oh, you're the, right. Yeah. The buckets of a lot water. Of sloshing splashing, splashing yeah. everywhere. Yeah. yeah.
0: So this particular paper is a South Korean paper and it was published in Achievements in the Life Sciences and it's by Yuan Han. It's from uh, 2016, and uh, I'm not going to summarize a lot of the paper because a lot of the paper is just sort of breaking it down into, from a fluid dynamic standpoint. Right. What's happening with a sloshing cup of coffee or a sloshing uh, like, goblet of wine? But the fun part is that this article doesn't just doesn't just describe what's happening; it presents solutions. Nice. Okay. Yes. So uh, wait,
2: you're telling me I might have some solutions for my
0: coffee problems? Yeah, I'm saying that. When you, when we're done with this section, you will have, uh, new ideas to implement okay. in your coffee consumption and your handling of a coffee mug. I like you, Ignobos. Uh, apart from sippy cups? <laughs> um, well, a base, well, they get, they're, in a way, there's sort of a sippy cup. They do right. recommend you could, You could hold the coffee mug with, a like, a a small plate on top of it, just cover the coffee mug. That seems obvious. You don't really need a a scientist to point that out. But, yeah, maybe if we didn't have an open container of liquid, Uh we wouldn't have to deal with sloshing. But I assume
1: they have better solutions than that.
0: Well, we'll see if you think they're better. Okay. Uh, Here's a quote from the paper. Moreover, we showed that either walking backwards or holding the cu- the cup with a claw hand posture led to significant changes in the driving force frequency spectrum suggesting a method to suppress uh <laughs> resonance so wow one of the ideas here is yes simply walk backwards with your coffee mug okay um but the other is that, and i have a, a i feel like i would spill even more with that but okay i'm <laughs> i'm listening the other is to have your – make a claw with your hand yeah. and hold the coffee mug uh top down. Not bottom up. Right. <laughs> so you're holding your coffee like you're some sort of a – like a cartoon vampire. Yeah. Uh Carrying yeah. it around from the top You're the, crane, of the mug. It's the crane game. Yeah. It's like the crane game where instead of grabbing a, a bunch of like cheap stuffed animals, you're grabbing a single coffee mug. I know. This is a better method. It makes you look kind of stupid, but – it is a better method according to the scientific data. Now, I know, Robert, you haven't seen the new season of Twin
2: Peaks. Joe, you have, right? No, I actually haven't Oh, Okay, yet. so neither of you... I'm going to. Don't spoil it. No, I'm just going to say there is a character named Dougie in it and Dougie holds coffee in the claw method but he does two-handed claw where he grabs it from the side and he holds it with... Both of his hands are
1: clawed and he holds onto it tightly like that. Mm. Man, I have a totally different idea of the claw hold and it comes from my days serving in restaurants where the claw was how you fit three water glasses in the same hand you have got this clutch oh, yeah. thing but it's right. underneath right yeah from the uh-huh. bottom where they each like they fit between the first finger and the well i'm not going to describe all that but yeah you can get three water glasses in one hand if you use the claw
0: what was the spillage like with that not too much actually yeah? okay mm-hmm. it might have hit on a similar property but that that's the other thing that comes to mind uh, in the the service industry you can't really use the top-down claw method to bring someone their coffee at right. a restaurant. They're going to think you're a... Uh, yeah, they're going to say, take that back. Sure. You, you're basically sticking your hand in my beverage. But it looks like here that they have come up with a
1: design that could fix that problem.
0: Yes. Uh, that's carry the other... it in your mouth and then spit it out into the <laughs> cup at the table. Well, at least it would be closed, right? And then you're prepared for a, a wonderful uh, cinematic response to any jokes that the the, uh, the customer may may, uh, may share. Right. But no, th- in addition to providing new ways to carry existing coffee mugs this study does present an alternate coffee cup design quote it is evident that a decrease in the radius of the cup can significantly increase the resonance frequency by dividing the cup into smaller cylindrical cells oh cool oh. so th- i like a, how this looks it's like yeah. a, a coffee cup but it looks like
2: it's got a bunch of like a uh, syringes with the top sawed off inside of it. It's yes.
0: impossible to drink out of. It, it looks impossible to drink out of. It looks a bit silly to you say can't the use least. a
2: spoon for sure. I mean a straw.
0: Yeah, it, basically the picture looks like a a glass like a cocktail yeah. Sure. And inside it, there are all of these uh, glass vials. Yeah, it's packed with test tubes. Yeah. So imagine if you drink your coffee <laughs> out of uh, a bunch of test tubes that have been lashed together uh-huh. as opposed to a single broad uh, drinking vessel. I mean,
1: what this looks like is you'd be sipping out of the like, bottom two test tubes and the rest would just be pouring into your eyes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well you couldn't throw it back, that's for sure. <laughs>
2: And it would be really – you would have to mix your cream
0: and sugar in a different cup entirely before you even pour it. The thing that gets me about about this, really both of these suggestions, both the coffee cup design and the coffee mug handling uh, 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 method, is that what if these – what if this is the way? What if these are the changes we need for a better system of drinking and carrying coffee around, but we're ultimately going to just be too vain – to to change because, yes, drinking out of this bizarre contraption that looks like a bunch of test tubes looks silly. Carrying your coffee mug around with a claw uh, hold looks silly. And it, But there are other things that we've seen in life where the sillier-looking method is more successful and we don't do it because it looks silly. I'm going to offer a really
1: stupid method, but it's my method. Uh-huh. I pretty much never spill my coffee because I never fill my cup more than two-thirds of the way Well, because this... I don't want to get the fear.
0: But the thing is Joe I I have there have been so many times where um, I've been coming in from my front porch so I I work on my front porch a lot when yeah uh, when I'm teleworking and I'll always have a coffee mug with me and sometimes the coffee mug you know it's down to the last little bit but you can still trust me you can still slosh the heck out of a cup of coffee when you have less than a fourth of a cup yeah so
1: if you're like trying to grab hold of a child or something like yeah, that. Yeah,
0: or if you you know you you have a laptop and you have the coffee mug yeah, on top okay. of the laptop. But the, the thing that this reminded me of and I am not a sports person at all but I but I heard a, it was either a radio lab or this American life episode in the last several years about the the granny shot in basketball about how this is the most effective way to make a free throw. So describe the granny shot. The granny shot is the it's generally associated with if you don't know how to bowl or you don't know how to throw a basketball, yeah. you simply hold it in your hands and you just – you sort of – Stand legs apart. Legs akimbo, yeah. And you just uh, dangle it down there between your legs and then throw it up. Underhanded. Uh, underhanded. Yeah. A, a double – handed underhand throw with legs akimbo so you're saying that people using this method get
1: a higher frequency percentage of shots than people who don't use it
0: yeah basically the idea is that it's been proven that this is the most effective method uh, e- even in the it's it really especially in the nba uh-huh. uh, and those who utilize this method um make more free throws. But it's pretty rare that you'll see this during a game. Because it looks <laughs> stupid. Yeah. yeah. Because it, there's this idea that if you throw the ball that way, you don't know what you're doing. Right. That it, it has less finesse to it, even if it's more effective. Yeah. Even if it could ultimately, you know, make a difference in winning games, it's still something, it's a line that most basketball players are not willing to cross. It sounds
1: like there's a window for somebody to come in and uh, moneyball all
0: this thing. <laughs> I guess, yeah. But, but
1: One, I wonder... I'm sorry I just... Used Moneyball as a verb, like I'm some ad executive.
2: Well, let's
0: quickly pivot away from that, and we'll move back to the coffee cups. <laughs> yeah, but but it, it raises the question: What again? What if this is the best way? This is the scientifically verified way to drink coffee, and we're just all going to ignore it as we've been ignoring it because, uh, like I say, this 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 came out last year, and nothing has changed. Yeah. Now that uh, it's getting, it's making the rounds with the Ig Nobel prizes. Is it more likely that people will listen to it? Will you? Will there be like one person in a given workplace that embraces the crazy test tube filled uh, coffee mug? If those tubes were available on the market and they weren't like
2: prohibitively expensive, I'd give it a shot.
0: Yeah, maybe we should. It we could, we could be an experiment. We, yeah. may, maybe listeners out there will try it themselves. If you don't try the test tube uh, uh, oriented coffee mug, then try the top down claw method of holding the cup. And let us know how it goes. All right. So there you have it. Four down. um, Six to go. Yeah. So follow us on our next episode
2: about egg Nobels. We're going to release this right one after the other. Sequentially, mm-hmm. I believe is how they say it. Uh, but you know what? If you've got any questions for us about coffee mugs or weird insect genitalia or how you make liquid cats, where can they get in touch with us, Joe?
1: Well, you can go to stuff to blow your mind dot com where you've got everything we do, including Robert's excellent blog posts. He'll do some space music. He'll do some monsters. I don't know. Are we going to get any monsters in November? surely we will even though we've just yeah surely i
0: can find a monster too to throw in the november mix
1: but that's of course where you can get all of our podcasts but also you can go wherever you get your podcasts you're listening to us right now so you probably know how to do that if you're not subscribed subscribe and you can always email us at blow at